0: Alright everyone, Um, I know others will be coming shortly, the 9 o'clock service is letting out as I understand it and many more people are on their way but I want to maximize our time with our speaker who as you see is here along with his lovely wife Nina and so I will get started. Uh, As you know I'm Clark Irvin, thank you all very much for being here with us on this lovely uh, but rainy uh, September morning for the start of our program year 2022-2023. We are so pleased to welcome as our speaker this morning the acclaimed and noted journalist whom all of us know from his many years in television, Chip Reid. Chip began his career as a national television correspondent at NBC News, as we remember, serving first as a general assignment correspondent based here in Washington, D.C., then over the years foreign correspondent, next as combat correspondent during the Second Iraq War, and finally as chief congressional correspondent and senior political correspondent. Then in 2007, he moved on, and we were just talking about this, to CBS News, serving over the years as Chief Congressional Correspondent, Chief White House Correspondent, and most recently, until last year, National Correspondent. Chip, over the years, has won numerous awards, including an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Report for a series on the Wounded Warrior Project. Now, Chip is a graduate of ambassador, Phi Beta Kappa, I should say, an MPA from Princeton, and what I didn't know beforehand is that Chip's first career was as a lawyer. He went to Columbia Law School. He began his professional life, as I say, as a lawyer, serving notably as counsel and chief investigator for one of our neighbors, guy who lives across the street, then Senator Joe Biden, when he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then later, Chip serves as the general counsel of the very first Biden for President campaign in 1988. With that, please join me in welcoming Chip and Nina Reeve. Thank you, Chip. <clears throat>
1: The trusty reporter pad, which uh, I am. I retired last year, so uh, I haven't used this since uh, I'm writing a book now, which I'll get to in a moment. And if it sounds like I have a little speech impediment, it's because I have a my one of my dogs uh i got in a fight and pulling the dog my dog off the other dog his head hit me in the mouth and knocked this tooth out so i have a little thing that i slip in there until i get an implant so so uh it's a good thing he did that after i retired from the news business
2: because uh he to make sure you stayed
1: home. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to make sure I stayed home. That's exactly right. He's, he's a very, very smart dog. Well, I have a connection to this parish, and that is through this gentleman here, Luis Leon. Um, he was the um, pastor minister, whatever we called him, at Trinity Episcopal Church in Wilmington, Delaware before he came here, and my father was the organist and choirmaster at Trinity Church in Wilmington, Delaware for 25 years, and for probably a year that uh, Luis Leon was there, and my mother was the soprano soloist for most of those 25 years. Uh, Inside job, yes, but she was the best singer in the (laughs) choir, so. so. But my father was, this was... One of my father's favorite ties, as I said, he was an organist and choir master, also a music teacher. Uh, He's my hero. Uh, We lost him in 2009. Uh, But he taught me, mostly by example, he wasn't one to tell me what to do with my life, uh, but he taught me by example that making a living is uh, not about making a living, it's about having a purpose, a higher purpose, uh, and it's about serving people. As a teacher, he saw his life As one devoted to serving people and to helping people and uh, so I went to law school after college and I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer or a human rights lawyer I didn't interview at law firms that just wasn't my thing so I uh, had two job offers out of law school one was with a small civil rights group where I would have been going from town to town in North Carolina uh, suing them for discriminating against their minority populations in the provision of municipal services. The standards had been set by, I believe, a long time ago, the Court of Appeals, and they were open and shut cases, easy to win. All I had to do was hop from town to town, file. I wanted to do it. But I had uh, volunteered for the gentleman across the street, Joe Biden, when I was in high school. and. I was 18 and he was first running for the U.S. Senate at age 29 from Delaware and he spoke at my high school and I was wowed by him and I volunteered for him and 10 years later I applied for a job on the Senate Judiciary Committee because he had an opening for the person who covers all of the civil rights and civil liberties issues, which were many at that time that went through the Senate Judiciary Committee so instead of going to this down in the trenches uh, job with a civil rights group i went to work i was drawn by the bright lights of capitol hill like a moth to a flame and it was fantastic i did that for four years uh and i start. i have the attention span of a gnat so four years i started to get uh, weary of what i was doing and i i knew he was going to run for president so i decided that i would go to a law i would you know just bite my tongue and go work for a law firm for a couple of years. I found one that really wanted a connection to Joe Biden. And so I had to bill my 40 hours a week, which I did just the bare minimum. And then I would spend 20 or 30 hours in addition to that, helping set up the uh, Testing the Waters Committee in the PAC and answering all the fundraisers questions uh, at the law firm. And then I went to, that ca- to his campaign full time in the summer of 1987 as counsel and then general counsel. And when it went down in a ball of flames, I guess you could say, in uh, the fall of 1987, uh, I decided I had to do something brand new. I was was done. I was done with my legal career. And as I was uh, agonizing over what to do with my life one day, my father said, well, what's the Greatest job in the world. What's your dream job? I said, well, that's easy. Ted Koppel has the greatest job in the world. He gets to hold politicians' feet to the fire. He gets to educate the American public. He, he uh, you know, it just looks like a lot of fun. And he said, well, give it a try. And I had become a real news junkie being in Washington as a lawyer working on all these controversial issues. And I went into, I got a job after six months. I was down to my last jar of peanut butter when ABC offered me a job covering hearings on Capitol Hill for um, about one-third the money I had been making at the law firm, but I really didn't care what the money was. And I did it, and it was, uh, pardon me for saying this in this house of, house of worship, but it was heaven on earth. Uh, I loved journalism from the day I started. Uh, Partly because I am a fierce believer in the First Amendment and the freedom of the press. You cannot have democracy without a a free press. Uh, Partly because it's just fun. It is a blast. You're always running here, running there, doing something different every day. It's never boring. And third, uh, it had a higher purpose. I was serving people. Uh, Like my father, I saw myself as a teacher, and he had an hour to teach a lesson to 30 students. I had two minutes to teach a lesson to six or seven million students. And I saw myself, my mantra was, my job is to help educate the public so they can intelligently participate in this great democracy. So I I found everything I needed in the news business and uh, I worked my way from ABC to NBC where I did probably more live shots on MSNBC uh, than anybody but Andrea Mitchell. The, uh, you know, nobody's ever going to beat Andrea Mitchell at anything. It's, uh, it's just not going to happen. So Andrea Mitchell, who works, I think this is literal, eight days a week. So uh, she's an amazing journalist, uh, but, uh, but I have a little bit of a gift of gab and I just blah 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 And uh, I would get up every morning and read every newspaper available and study like I was studying for the bar exam and I would be ready to report on anything that happened in the news world that day so I always had my hand up I'm ready I'm ready I loved it I absolutely loved it but I got a little bored after a while uh, just because that's my nature and I asked for something new and so the uh, one of the top executives at NBC said Chip you need to get out among the people, the regular people, you know get to know America, so they sent me to Los Angeles, <laughs> the town of regular people and but it really wasn 't really to cover Los Angeles. I covered the entire West, the mountain west, the coast of the Pacific states, uh, when I got lucky, Hawaii. And that was an adventure. That was a, a sheer pure adventure. I'm not sure there was that much of a higher purpose because a lot of the stories were you know I covered uh, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold's run for governor, uh, and I covered a lot of forest fires, and it was mostly an adventure. It was mostly fun more than anything else. and And I didn't have this feeling of, of uh, deep fulfillment. but then Uh, 9-11 happened, and uh, this being the anniversary of 9-11, it gets me shaky even thinking about it, but, and I'm sure it gets you that way too, but but 9-11 happened, and I put my hand up again, and I said, I'll do whatever you need, so they turned me into a guided missile and sent me all over the Middle East, and uh, first I went to Egypt, then Uzbekistan, then Afghanistan, and a lot of time in Israel, Gaza, West Bank, uh, um, Pakistan, uh, Qatar, Qatar. Please don't call it gutter. Or, but uh, but and and so but that was it was I had that purpose back again, trying to explain to people the chaos that was the world after 9/11 and was this country after 9/11. It, it was a very meaningful job. Um, and But the highlight of that was being embedded with the U.S. Marines for uh, six weeks in Iraq. Uh, I'm somebody who came of age, I was 18 in 1973 when the last thing anybody that I knew wanted to do was join the military because troops were coming home from, I think my mother would have thrown herself in front of the car if I had driven off to, uh, to the, go to the recruiting office. Um, But it was uh, the last thing I wanted to do was be in in the military at that age, uh, where if suddenly Congress and Richard Nixon had decided to start sending troops back to uh, Vietnam, I was 1A, I would have been uh, first in line. So it was, uh, so to spend this time with these kids 18, 19, who were making life and death decisions in an instant and putting their lives on the line when at that age my biggest quandary was who to take to the prom or uh, whether to take political science or psychology in college, Uh, I developed a tremendous uh, respect for these guys and I'll get back to this in a little while because I'm writing a book now and it's about them 20 years later. But so uh, I came back from uh, Iraq and went back to uh, Los Angeles. And it was a very uh, disappointing time, because I think the networks had just, uh, they were very concerned with sliding ratings across the board in network news. And so more than ever, they were jumping on the latest hot, shallow story. And for me, that meant missing women. They had to be young, they had to be white, they were usually blonde, and they had to be attractive. Usually, really attractive, and it just, it just made my blood boil that I was spending my career uh, tracking uh, missing women who who were were so unrepresentative of the American public. So uh, one day, when I was on about my sixth missing blonde uh, on the West Coast or wherever, you know, covering, I kept going back to Modesto, California, because for some reason that's where uh, they kept popping up. Uh, and I don't say it dismissively about the women who were missing or their families. It was tragic, but it was not national news. It was only national news because it gave them a quick spike in the ratings. And it was like it was like the executives were like people on crack. You know, they would get a high, and then they'd go for another high and go for another high. And so they kept doing these uh, rather... Uh, shallow stories I got very disillusioned so I got in touch with uh, a couple of the executives back home and I said and a lot was going on in Congress at the time so I got in touch with uh, the powers that be and said I think I'm going to go back to DC they immediately sent me back because they needed somebody right away so I went back covered the hill for NBC for about four years Got a little tired of that, uh, again, not because the Hill isn't the greatest speed in news, uh, it, at least in Washington, uh, it is. Uh, but uh, I had the attention span of a gnat, and I was ready to move on to something else. So I applied to CBS, and they said, great, we'd love to have you. You can be our White House or our State Department guy. They hired me. I went to work, and they said, sorry, change in plans. For the first year or so, we need you on Capitol Hill. <laughs> okay, which is fine. I love the Hill, but it's, so I did that. And after a year, I went out on the campaign trail and I covered John McCain and and to a lesser degree, I covered Obama. And when he became president, they offered me the job to be the White House correspondent, which was wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed covering it. There were two problems with it. Number one, uh, I loved him. And my job as somebody covering him had to be to never give any sign of how I personally felt. I've always felt that my job, my personal views are irrelevant so I worked very hard and uh, you know some people accused me of bending over backwards too far and being too rough on him and one of those people is sitting in the front row my wife. I can remember coming home from work several times after uh, grilling him at a press conference uh, or whatever else and I would come home and she would come to the door and she would turn around and walk away like this (laughs) and as I walked in she would say over her shoulder, what did you do to my president today? and so it was a little rough in the house sometimes because uh she believes he can i say this here walks on water is that okay in in a house of worship but uh anyway so it was uh but but i loved it it was a it was a great job but again after three or four years of that i was ready to do something else again and they said well uh, what would you like to do and I said I, I, I'm tired of doing a beat I just want to do all story I said well if you we can make you a national correspondent but if you do that then you're going to have to come up with your own story ideas I said fantastic that would be wonderful so the last 10 years of my career were the best job I ever had in news uh, which you know, I called it kids pets seniors and vets and and or, not veterinarians, veterans, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so, what I did for the most part was feel good stories uh, about anything that I could find. I, you know, the news is so negative, and I, of course, was a big part of that for many years. And uh, I just thought it would be wonderful to do feel-good features about kids, pets, seniors and vets, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And hence the title here, uh, From Politics to War to Cuddling Goats. One of the stories I did was on cuddling goats. There's a goat farm, a goat cheese farm down in uh, uh, not far from Charlottesville, where um they had a whole new slew. A whole bunch, dozens of baby goats were born. And you need to handle baby goats so that they're not afraid of people. Otherwise it's gonna make the cheese making business very difficult, so you need to handle them. So they were there 24 hours a day, the five or six people who worked there handling goats, cuddling goats. So somebody put in a local newspaper an ad uh, for goat cuddlers, and volunteer goat cuddlers, and they got a message, uh, and they got about four people who came in uh, in response to that. Somebody had the wise idea of putting it on social media, and they got 2,000 volunteers to come in and cuddle their goats. So they had to—they had people volunteering to fly at their own expense from places like Australia. England and California to cuddle, cuddle goats for two hours. That's it. Cuddle goats—a one-time thing. Cuddle goats for two hours. It shows you how much people need cuddling and love and all that stuff. And it's—it's it's a great example of the kind of story that I loved doing. Just total feel-good, makes your heart warm. I mean, a lot of the stories were were hard. There were a lot of stories about vets with PTSD. Uh, there were a lot of stories about. On the heartwarming side, I did probably two dozen stories on people over the age of a hundred. And uh, uh, I did one on a, on a gentleman at a uh, nursing home in, outside of Philadelphia, in Bryn Mawr, who had just put out his first jazz album uh... with his much much younger music partner uh, an eighty eight-year-old man and, and who he called the kid uh... i did uh... a story about a cat that rode on the back of a motorcycle and the, the guy who owned this cat was so in love with this cat it was just an absolutely beautiful he was a, a, a guy with some serious social issues and he just loved this cat so much and the cat would crawl up onto his back it's funny, you know, I haven't mentioned interviewing Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Uh, I'm talking all about cats and goats because those are the stories that really live in me to this day. Uh, but this uh, cat, would <laughs> he's going down the interstate highway with a cat on the back of his motorcycle and would climb up onto his shoulder and put its paws on the windscreen, and if he wasn't going fast enough, the cat would look back and go... <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, these stories just warmed my heart. And I, kids, pets, so many stories on children uh, who, were, who were terminally ill or otherwise uh, challenged in school or in life. Pets, <laughs> I'm a dog nut and my wife and I always have dogs. We have two pit bulls now. We rescue pit bulls and uh, we had three until recently, but one of them uh, had um, lymphoma and uh, uh, one day said, I'm done. I can't get up. I can't eat. I'm done. So, but anyway, kids, pets, seniors, lots of senior stories and veterans. Uh, and that brings me to what I'm doing now. Uh, I, when I retired last year, I decided, uh, at first I thought I was gonna go work for the guy across the street, and then I couldn't find exactly what I wanted to do, and, I, you know, I may still go try to do that, uh, my old buddy from age 17, and, uh, but for now I decided I wanted to write a book, and I was driving home to, uh, Wilmington, Delaware to see my mother. Um, on Thanksgiving of last year. And uh, I had a little brainstorm, a pickup truck roared by me. And it had a Marine sticker on the back and it also had temporary plates. And it was the Marines I had been embedded with in Iraq. And I thought, geez, there's a Marine. He doesn't even have permanent plates yet and he's already got a Marine sticker on the back of his truck. I mean, these guys are serious. And I started thinking about my time uh, embedded with the Marines, uh, which was without question the one story that is head and shoulders above everything else I ever covered. You know, 18 year old kids making life and death decisions, people putting their lives on the line, uh, kids knowing Uh, Since they were four years old, they wanted to be US Marines. But in other cases, uh, there were two Navy crosses, which is one short of Medal of Honor, awarded to guys in my battalion while I was there. And both of those guys said that if I hadn't become a Marine, I became a Marine because otherwise I was going to go to jail for the rest of my life. And so you just, the the different life experiences of these guys, uh, before the Marines, and after the marines are just extraordinary and so i am writing a book i think i'm going tentatively titled battle scars because they all came out scarred in some way or another either physically or psychologically some of them much less than others some of them still struggling with survivor's guilt mightily struggling with survivor's guilt to this day Uh, many of them um, uh, still struggling with various forms and severity of PTSD, Uh, many of them still um, disabled in certain ways from injuries, Uh, but I came to admire these these men and I say men because they in the 1100 plus people in this battalion they were all men. I think today uh, the Marines allows women in combat battalions but they can't be on the front lines, but someday that will be that will come, I'm sure. But uh, so I've inter- interviewed over forty of them on Zoom, and uh, some of them preferred to re- give their answers in writing, and. Uh, It has just been an extraordinary experience. I'm now at the point where I'm ready to start really organizing it. I've written most of it, the hard part is organizing it and putting it together into something that's really readable. And it has been, uh, it's again, a a higher purpose serving others. I feel like I'm serving them and it's a tribute to the Marines. I feel like I'm serving them uh, and not just the ones in this battalion and not just the 40-some I've interviewed but every Marine and every person who has put on the uniform to come to the defense or service of this country. So, and this is from a guy who was thinking about being a conscientious objector in 1973, during the Vietnam War, but uh, I had no idea that I would come to respect these guys so much. And women, I've done lots of stories on, on women veterans, female veterans, uh, aside from the Iraq experience. But it was, it was a life-changing experience for me and uh, I hope that comes through in this book that I am writing. And I am at 1028, can I open it up for questions? Sure. Yeah, because uh, my, little, my little outline has uh, uh, reached its end. I'm, I'm sure there are a, a few other things in my 33-year career that I, that I left out, for example, Chase, right? Chase was the head of the uh, building museum for many years, and I did a story, every summer they would have an extraordinary exhibit there, and I don't know if you remember, one year it was called The Beach, and they had these little plastic balls, thousands and thousands of little plastic balls, and people would just stand up and fall into them, dive into them, lose their cell phones in them, and I turned it into a real feel good story because there were uh, many people who, who were interviewed, uh, who I interviewed, who were really moved by this. So it was just a really great experience for families. Entire families would come down. And uh, there were families who couldn't afford to go to the beach, so they came down here to go to this beach. And it was, it was a fantastic. Anyway, I'm going to open it up for questions because I'm in, I'm in danger of just rambling on. So, yes. So, who are you, by the way?
2: Mommy. Jocelyn Titchner, you are a
1: fascinating guy. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. And, and I'm grateful to be here. So, when you were embedded in the Marines, they obviously had combat duties. When they were doing their combat duties, what did you do and how
1: were you able to interact with them when they were on the front lines? That is a fantastic question. That is a really good question. Um, it, it, It was kind of the luck of the draw. The big battles you could usually see coming. So they would basically say, "Chip." hang back. And also keep in mind that because I was reporting for NBC at the time, and MSNBC during the war was a voracious animal. It wanted me live every chance it could get. So usually during a battle, I would be back far enough. This was a battalion of 1100 and some men, so it stretched out over a couple of miles. And I was usually somewhere in the front third, but not right up front, although there were times when I was. Uh, but w- when when the bullets started flying, I was usually back far and just far enough that I was out of the range of fire, but I was close enough to hear it, to see the uh, the reinforcements uh, charging in, uh, close enough to report on it, but probably not close enough to get injured myself. But then there were other times. You never knew where the ambushes were going to hit in this battalion. I remember one where where bullets started pinging off the vehicle that I was in and fortunately it was a big uh, AAV amphibious assault vehicle so it was pretty much impervious to bullets but if they had hit it with a rocket propelled grenade or something we would have been in trouble but these usually the Marines uh, and by the way I should add I think the Iraq war was a gigantic mistake and a lot of the guys do now too just my personal opinion, but again, I could never let that show in my reporting. My job was simply to report on what was going on, what I heard, and what I saw, what I had been told. Uh, I I never thought it was a wise decision, uh, and um, I would say the Marines I've talked to, I would say a solid third of the ones I've talked to feel that way now and the other two-thirds another one-third say I'm just not gonna talk about it that's that's a decision for politicians not for me and the others said that I think we helped the Iraqi people and uh, we and you know, they had their own reasons for believing that it was, was a good idea. But, but to answer your question, there were times when I had to take cover, jump out of the vehicle and take cover in a ditch just like, uh, just like they did. But, the, but it was really, it was, it was like David and Goliath without the slingshot. It was, the it was, uh, U.S. Marines were like Goliath going up against people who really uh, just didn't have a chance against them. So, were,
2: you, were you scared? Were no I answer?
1: was scared a couple of times. I was scared a couple of times. There was one night, the first night that gunfire broke out was right after a giant dust storm. Uh, and after a, you know, a dust storm and a, and a deluge, a rain deluge of biblical proportions. And the sky, you, you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. And all of a sudden, an explosion of gunfire. Couldn't tell who was shooting at whom uh... there was tracer fire which are bullets that are red uh... that are so that when you are shooting at night you can see where your bullets are going and i could see that and uh... one of the marines grabbed me threw me under a truck and said stay there and uh... you know they had told me in the very beginning that uh chip when the uh, you know what hits the fan we're, we're not going to have time to help you or your crew and I, I, I I'm embarrassed to say I haven't mentioned but I also had a cameraman and a guy who handled our little tiny satellite because we had to get our news out and I also had a producer so there were four of us so it, we, we all were under danger in danger in, in some of those circumstances uh, but uh, anyway yeah I hope I you're I, I want to get around the room Thank a little you. bit, sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yes? So I really admire and appreciate
2: your, uh, how seriously you take objectivity being objective in your reporting. Do you feel that that mentality is still pervasive in the news field, or is that eroding?
1: I think it's eroding, but it's there is still a core of reporters out there. Uh, I I think, you know, I know the mainstream news gets a lot of grief, but I think the reporters for my networks, NBC, i worked at ABC, NBC, and CBS, I think the people who covered the beats in Washington and who are out in field covering, I think it has not eroded. I, still, I think they still feel very devoted to the concept that they need to report objectively. Now obviously when I'm reporting on feel-good features, I'm not going to pretend I don't love dogs or kids or veterans or seniors. But so that was one of the great things about that beat. I didn't have to uh, hide how I personally felt. But yeah, I, I think it's eroding around the edges though. You look at all the cable stations now are clearly left or right. And uh, that it doesn't mean they don't have the Andrea Mitchells out there doing news reports, but it came, it came to a point, even when I was at MSNBC, where they would have these four boxes, they called them. It's a left, a lefty, a righty, an anchor, and a reporter and after a while who was who became so indistinguishable to the average viewer that I just said I'm not doing that anymore because if you put me on as a reporter but I'm not gonna be in a four box or a six box or an eight box where everybody's talking and everybody who's watching assumes everybody has a is expressing a personal point of view so I think it's eroding around the edges but I think there is still a solid core of print and uh, radio and TV Correspondents, reporters out there who are still devoted to this concept of objectivity. so. Yes? And who are you? I'm Chris Hammond. Nice to meet you. Um, or Christina, whatever. Um, you have the gift of the gap. Yep. You love people and you love
2: listening and bringing people together. It seems to me one of the things I think most of us have been struggling with, I suspect. Is trying to understand the perspectives of those who are so, seem, seem to be coming from a completely different uh, perspective on things, politically, socially, economically, environmentally. Have you ever, do you have any sort of ideas about what you might do next with respect to that? And helping that conversation, helping people actively listen and understand those who seem so very different from us, um, us being conservatives in Washington. You yeah.
0: understand. Oh, yeah,
1: I understand. I'm Farla. Could you just, I, Could you it. just paraphrase that,
0: Chip, for the, for the reporter,
1: just to give I think you're asking, without saying the word Trump supporters.
0: I, that's correct.
1: Without saying the word Trump supporters, we are, she is trying to, she is wondering what I might be able to do, or maybe Lots. we might be able to do, as a nation and a room full of people, to try to understand people who think so differently uh, than the way we do. Right. And it's a, I, I'll, I covered probably 20 to 30 Trump rallies. Uh, and I was at many when he would point at us and say, there they are, the enemies of the people. Pointing to us up on that stage, and the people would turn and boo, boo, and it's. And you know, we would just smile, and 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 he would, for some horrible reason, always single out the cameramen as though they were the evil force here. You know, he'd say, "Look at him! Look at that guy! He just turned off his red light. He doesn't want to hear this." And uh, it's. I I don't have any answers here. I. Uh, it's, it's people who feel in some way deeply dispossessed and the way to try to bring this back together is you know I don't want to toot the horn of my old boss Joe Biden but but at least he's trying to work in a bipartisan fashion he hasn't always done that but at times he has tried uh, and there are some people who just don 't even want to try. We just have to keep trying. as for me personally, I considered write, writing my book about that the downward spiral of American politics in recent years, and what we can do about it. But I would be one of you know a hundred two hundred people who have written books on that topic, and we haven 't really gotten anywhere with it and i don 't think that i and I, when I finally saw this Pickup truck with the Marine sticker drive by. I said, That's it, I can escape having to live in a world of Donald Trump versus uh, uh, non Donald Trumps for the next uh, year. And uh, I mean, this story has been empowering to me, the book that I'm writing. I just couldn't face doing that, but maybe we all need to face it and try to figure out some way to bring people together. but I wish I had a brilliant answer to your question, but I don't think there is one at this point other than trying, peeling people off one at a time, not to say, oh, I hate Trump, but saying, why can't we work together to figure out the solutions to these problems? And...
0: It seems to me the media must have a role in the oh,
1: Yeah, but and, I... And should have a role Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree. But I'm, I consider myself out of the media other than the book writing world. So, which, is, uh, which is kind of refreshing actually. I can do my own thing now. Yes, sir. I recognize you.
2: Oh, um, well, on the other side of the television screen it's hard. <laughs> um, to build on that same set of issues, if you're just reporting the facts yeah. and you hear a lie coming off of the stage, you're just reporting the facts without the context. Yeah. And if you report the context, then you're getting partisan. Yeah, you're,
1: it's a tough one. It's a tough one and it happened gradually. I mean, I mean with the former president, the, the former guy as Joe Biden likes to call him, but uh, it's a tough one. Uh, and it, I think we all saw this very gradual process it took being led by the New York Times because we all kind of take a certain amount of guidance from the New York Times and the Washington Post because in my opinion that's where the top reporters are. Yes, we have a lot of good reporters in uh TV news, but the ones who are the shining lights are mostly at those two publications and the Wall Street Journal. I mean, that's where I take uh, that, that's where I think the American media is when you look at them. And yes, they lean left. There's no doubt about it, but they uh uh uh, most of the reporters pull themselves in, I think reasonably well, but but the point I'm making is that it took a long time for mainstream journalists to just say it's a lie. And I think what really changed that was uh, January sixth um, and it, people just said i can't i can't I can't help myself anymore. I, I don't want to help myself. We have to say this is a lie. This election was not stolen. These were Trump. Supporters there. I was there. I had bicycle racks thrown at me that day by people screaming for Trump. So, uh, um, I mean, I can tell you, it was a Trump rally, and it was a violent Trump rally, and uh, and I think that's what made everybody finally realize that when there's a lie, we have to say so. But, but it's you know the, the, the the. The danger for us is that I do believe that journalists tend to lean left. There's just something about the field of journalism that attracts people who lean left. Maybe it's the, I don't know, you know, we could could have a four-hour conversation about why that is, but I do think it's true. Uh, Most of my friends uh, who, who lean right wouldn't want to do this they would rather go work for a law firm or be a doctor and and have a a normal life with a family and and they don't want to do something where they feel like they're saving the world now there are plenty of exceptions to that Uh, but but uh, but it's 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 tough but but the point I was getting to is that for a for an entity that is seen as leaning left it was hard for us to get to the point of calling Donald Trump's statements lies because it it would simply increase this perception among people on the right and perhaps even in the middle that we're not objective, that we think if it comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, it's a lie. And so there was a certain amount of foot dragging that went on before we finally got to the point of saying he's lying. So does that help at all? No. Yeah. Doesn't make it any better. Doesn't solve. Darn! My goal here was to solve the problem today. Okay. Yes. Good morning. Hi. Hi.
2: My name is Rick Bush. That's B-U-S-C-A. <laughs>
1: I like your beard. So.
2: German side of the family. Jocelyn's question and others that have your responses to others this morning. To break my mind, um, the dangers of being a journalist, being present at uh, January 6th, um, what I'm driving at is journalists who serve in foreign countries or are becoming captured there, like Mr. Tice, who fortunately, our newspaper here, helps us all remember him. Every month him, well, almost every month, uh, there's a full-page picture of him in the Washington Post. Um, he's been gone for 10 years. Mm. It has been 10 years. He's right wow. in Syria. And as a layperson. person, um, I think he's either dead. I think he must be dead by this time. What's What's your sense of? I mean, you were embedded with the Marines, so you had
0: you had some protection. Yeah. But serving
2: in a foreign country, what's your sense of safety issues? Um,
1: well, I, yeah. I have always been. Uh, agog at the courage of some of my fellow journalists. Now I was embedded, like you said, when people say, weren't you scared, my usual stock response to that is, are you kidding? I was surrounded by a thousand well-armed, well-trained Marines, what's there to be afraid of? But I was in danger. I did have bullets fly pretty close. Um, And in fact, uh, my mindset was, uh, when I decided to go, by the way, the first chapter of my book is going to be titled, uh, Mr. Magoo Goes to War. Uh, because uh, my wife Nina didn't want me to do this, uh, we were, she was my girlfriend then, and we were walking along the beach in California, uh, a couple uh, shortly before I left, and she was sobbing, tears running down her eyes, partly because she didn't want the nation to go to war, and partly because she didn't want me to be part of it, and she said, "It turned to me and." you can't do this you're 48 years old you have bad knees and back it's like mr McGo goes to war so, <laughs> so the part of the book so the part of the book that is about my embedding is and what i went through to become an instant marine as they called me um uh is mr Magoo goes to war so but uh that's me, Mr. Magoo, and there were some Mr. Magoo moments, but mostly I did pretty well. But as far as the danger, I remember uh, being with the Marines, going across the desert, and feeling pretty safe most of the time. There were a couple of moments of being afraid. Um, more, but more than a couple, but not that many. Um, and I remember seeing a little, I don't know if it was a Volkswagen minibus, but it was a little a bus that we, we passed by, it w- they were journalists from Scandinavia, I don't remember if it was Sweden or Norway uh, or Denmark, out there on their own in this little vehicle. Uh, they didn't want to be embedded with, with Marines or, or soldiers. They wanted to be out there on their own doing it. And the courage that that takes is just extraordinary. And there are so many journalists uh, who are like that. Now, I was, I was prepared. I didn't tell Nina this at the time probably, but I was prepared. I wasn't prepared to lose my life. I wasn't prepared to have what they now call a traumatic brain injury because nobody had heard of it. Who wants that? But I was prepared to lose an arm or a leg. I remember thinking that if I lost an arm or a leg, I would be willing to do that in service to my country. And it was partly that marine mentality that you gotta put it on the line. Um, But the level of courage among not just journalists, but so many people around the world who believe in this higher purpose and serving other people, uh, is just off the charts, what people do, and, and so many journalists who I bow to them, uh, I bow to them because they are so much more courageous than, than I would ever be. Uh, it's, it's life and death every day for them.
0: Thank you. With that, everyone, please join me in Thank you. Sure.
1: Yours was a good question.
2: I have a question for you. You have another one?